When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bookaloo. This is a bonus podcast. That's right. I initially had the idea to interview a fellow named Pete Leeson because I was doing some research on trial by combat. And I realized that this was a real blind spot in my research. I knew absolutely nothing about trial by combat. So I was doing some research and finding some interesting information The most interesting article that I came across was not by a medievalist, but was by an economist by the name of Pete Leeson. Pete had written an article on trial by battle as it was used for land disputes under Anglo-Norman law. So I found that interesting, but I was even more intrigued when I found out that not only does Pete describe what it was... He actually takes a positive stance toward the institution. He basically argues that trial by battle was better than the alternatives for settling such disputes. I found this bizarre, and I reached out to Pete and said, Hey, can I interview about this? Because this is fascinating to me. So Pete was kind enough to do it, and the initial idea was to interview him for about 20 minutes and include it in a bird's eye view, but the conversation was so interesting that it went almost for an hour, and then I had to figure out, what am I going to do with all of this material? And I figured, well, maybe I'll just put this out as a bonus podcast. It won't interrupt the regular flow of the chapter-by-chapter coverage. Now, before we get to Pete, let me just say a quick word about this interview. I begin this interview with kind of a fact-finding mentality. I really want to understand Pete's argument, and I think that I can appreciate the argument, and I think I can see the merits of the argument, even if I don't agree with it. The second part of the interview kind of strays into a more philosophical jurisprudence argument, and Pete and I couldn't be more different when it comes to this conversation. To my mind, Pete really does zig where I would naturally zag. So you'll hear that in the conversation. But I think we also both enjoyed talking with each other, and so I hope that that is conveyed as well. Here is the Duncan Black Professor of Economics at George Mason University, Peter Leeson. Pete, let's talk a little bit about your book first. It's titled, (laughs) What the Fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And honestly, it's a very weird looking economy text. So tell me a little bit about this book. Well, it is a weird looking economy book, and it is a a very weird sort of economic discussion. The basic idea behind the behind the book is that I, I'm trying to use economic reasoning in order to make sense of some of the world's seemingly most senseless social institutions and practices. And so a lot of those social institutions and practices, for example, trial by battle, are historical. 
Um, but some of them, for example, trial by poison ingestion uh, in Liberia are contemporary. And so I'm bringing the economic lens to bear uh, just as a way to try and understand and, and make sense of these things. Well, it's a really fun book. And I mean, uh, it's almost like you're visiting a different culture with every chapter. Yeah, yeah, I mentioned. So there's the Liberian case. There's also I look at the the superstitious sort of legal underpinnings mm -hmm. of contemporary Roma. Um, I try and, you know, one of the central themes of the book is that things that seem really weird, in particular that we did, that people did in the past, once understood through the economic lens, mm -hmm. yield a kind of basic central, you know, sensible logic that you can see at work in contemporary practices that a lot of times don't look as weird, although, you know, sometimes they do too. To take one more example of a contemporary practice that perhaps many people don't think is too strange, but actually is if you dig into the science of it, is the reliance to a certain degree by our law enforcement community on polygraph tests, hmm. on lie detectors. Uh, turns out, you know, lie detectors are, are bullshit scientifically, which is why they're typically not admitted as evidence. Polygraph evidence ordinarily isn't admissible in, in our legal system. Uh, but we still, in the background, our legal system relies very heavily on, mm. on lie detectors. And, mm. you know, there's a good reason for that. Yeah, I have a few other ideas about this, but I do want to get to trial by battle here. Um, I mean, the way that I found your book was I typed in Peter Leeson WTF into my Amazon search bar, but I'm assuming that I could also find this on the Stanford Press website. Yes, yep. The WTF is available, you know, via Amazon, but also through Stanford. Okay, well, I, and I'm sure that many of the folks listening will want to check that out. In fact, the last chapter in that book deals with trial by battle, which is what we're talking about today. Yeah. Okay, so Pete, let's let's imagine a scenario where you and I are living in what the, the 1300s under Anglo-Norman law and I'm a landowner and you're a landowner and there's a plot of land that I think is mine and you think is yours. So what <laughs> exactly. do we do what do we do about this? What happens next? Well, what we do back in the mostly the 11th and 12th century, although it it you know spilled over certainly into the 13th century and even beyond Mostly what we did was we, you know, the, the, the one of us who was challenging the, the land on which the other would, the other person would be an occupant would, you know, offer up the, uh, their challenge via a, a process called a writ of right, which was basically asking the government and the court mm -hmm. to consider the possibility that, in fact, you were the true owner of the land that, for example, let's say I'm the current tenant of. And then the court would basically, you know, think a little bit about whether or not your claim, your challenge to my land right seemed plausible. Mm. And the key problem here was that they didn't really have very much to go on uh, right. back, in, back in this period. It was pretty much, you know, the property, land, real property rights, meaning property rights to, to actual land, were pretty much based on witness, witnesses claiming that they had observed somebody who had historically been the legitimate occupant right. of a piece right. of land and that that passed on. Uh, and occasionally there were land charters. So somebody every once in a while would write stuff down. Right. So uh, let's imagine the judge just doesn't have enough information to go on. 
And we decide that what we're going to do is we're going to demonstrate our our property rights upon each other's bodies. Right? <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> so, so what happens now? <laughs> well, so the judge is looking at this case. Yeah. He's not sure which one of us is in fact the true owner of the piece of contested land. Uh-huh. And so what he would then order us to do would be to essentially hire legal representatives who were called champions who would then prove on their bodies via a physical fight right. who the true owner of the land was. And whoever's <laughs> champion, yours or mine, yeah. won that physical fight would end up reserving or being able to legally claim for their principal, for you or I, legal title to the land. Right. And we call this trial by battle. Trial by battle, right. judicial combat, batshit craziness. Take your pick. Yes, yes. And yet there was sort of a theological component to this. Uh, I, yeah. I, go ahead. Yeah. So the you know the ostensible justification that would was that God would favor the right disputants cause in a physical conflict, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it seems that that nobody really believed that, and and that underlying belief didn't really play a very important role in the actual operation of trial by battle. Right. Okay. So let's say this trial by battle is about to take place, and We've both hired champions. I guess you and I have both paid a champion, right? Uh, could be that yeah. my champion's a little bit better because I paid him. A li- I could afford a little bit of, of a better hired legal representative. Yeah. So, you know, there was a market for champions in the same way that today there's a market for, you know, regular lawyers, guys who are going to make arguments on your behalf in front of a court. Right. And also just like today. Historically, you know, better champions had better reputations than worse champions. They were more likely to win, which is why they had a better reputation. And as a consequence, you know, they commanded higher wages in the marketplace. Right, right. Okay. Well, that, I mean, it makes, it certainly makes sense. All right. So this doesn't always end in death. I remember I was looking at your paper on the Yale website, and it seems as if one of the champions, just has to like yield by saying the word craven. <laughs> right. But then that failed champion, he has consequences for doing that. Yeah. So there were a couple of ways that you could win or consequently lose these these judicial combats. So one of them was by, you know, killing your adversary in the in the arena during the fight. Right. But that ended up being like extraordinarily rare because of this second way that you could win or lose. And the way that you won was by forcing your opponent, his his champion, to utter craven, which was sort of like, you know, a medieval uncle rule. Right. Basically, sure. the, the guy was acknowledging, okay, you got me, you know, so yeah, rather than killing out. me, <laughs> tapping out, exactly. So I give in. Uh, and that was, you know, obviously the way that things typically went down because people don't want to get killed. And so what about the guy then who, who uttered craven? So he, by, by tapping out, he was basically, you know, surrendering, which meant that his principal, the landowner who had hired him, lost his cause in this battle, which means he wasn't going to get the legal right. And it also meant that that particular champion, quote unquote, lost his law. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. What does it mean to lose one's law? It generally meant that you could no longer serve as a witness in legal cases. So you're like disbarred in that case. <laughs> exactly. You're disbarred. Uh, and it really kind of was, that's a great analogy. It really kind of was dis- disbarment because remember, it's pretty much 
all witness testimony that's the basis for you know, legal contest during this period. That's the place where we always are starting. You know, what's the evidence available to us? It's basically witnesses claiming stuff. So this guy not being able to serve as anybody's witness going forward, you know, that was a big problem. Uh-huh. And I should add that in principle, this actually meant that a, you know, defeated champion couldn't serve as a champion again. Right. And the reason for that was that in principle, a tenant's champion, so the, the landowner who was the current occupant of land that was being disputed, um, he could hire anybody he wanted as a champion under Anglo-Norman law, but the demandant, so the person who was challenging somebody else's land right, officially he was supposed to only be able to use as a champion somebody who had either himself witnessed that his principal, in fact, had a property right to the contested land mm. or that he, had an, that he had heard from an ancestor that that was true. So it was all witness-based. Right. So since the champion for the plaintiff, so to speak, was supposed to, in fact, have been a witness, if, in fact, he lost in his trial, in his trial by battle, that might mean that he couldn't serve as a champion again. Right. But it turns out in practice, none of that really mattered because the <laughs> rule officially whereby the plaintiff's champion had to be a witness was never followed by anyone. The courts didn't enforce it. Nobody cared. Uh, And so it seems extremely unlikely that that would have actually been applied to champions. And so it seems to me that, of course, anything can happen when you're pointing sharp objects at each other, right? But it seems to me like the person who can afford the better champion has a significant advantage. Huge advantage. So he's probabilistically going to win just like you would imagine in a, you know, a boxing match or a mm-hmm. wrestling bout, right? The, the, the stronger, better guy, you know, the, the, the odds favorite is more likely to win, but of course it's possible that he could, he could be upset. And occasionally that could happen in, in yeah. trial by battle too, but it was very unlikely that these guys would, as I mentioned, die because they didn't in fact have pointed objects really aimed at each other. The weapons they were using were not sword like they were basically short blunt clubs. Oh, Occasionally these clubs had like a horn tipped. They were called Bacillus cornutus. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, that was the weapon which, with which these guys were fighting, which was a pretty much a kind of, you know, less lethal weapon. You could still kill somebody with a oh. club, especially a horn tipped one, but you were unlikely to do so. In addition to carrying this club, you also carried a small shield that was called a buckler. And so the combination of, you know, clubs plus shields meant people were unlikely to die. Huh. All right. Well, that's, I mean, it certainly makes me think about this a little bit differently than I did. I do like the example (laughs) in your paper, you bring up this great example of the Abbot of Mao who decides that he's going to, he's going to sort of corner the market on champions or at least first rate champions. So he hires seven. Yeah. He hired all the, all the best champions that he could, that he could find. Presumably once he had hit seven, he had gotten anybody who had even a remotely good chance of actually winning in a trial by battle. And so the other guy, this leaves him bottom of the barrel champion at that point. I mean, again, an example that if you can hire the better representation, you're most likely going to win. Yeah, exactly. Just like today you might, you know, and and companies certainly do, will hire on retainer a, a large, you know, battalion of great lawyers. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason that they're doing that is to deprive their potential legal opponents of, you know, 
the better representatives, which gives them a better chance of of winning, you know, at court. So what made your article intriguing to me was you argue that trial by battle was maybe a better alternative for settling land disputes. And so I want to ask you, like, what were the alternatives? Yeah, I think it was actually like a great alternative because start with what were their options? So, and by they, I mean a judge, you know, a court who's trying to decide what should we do with this contested piece of land, right? So what they would like to do would be able to figure out whether you or I, you know, which one of us is the true owner of the land. Mm -hmm. But as we talked about a little bit ago, they really in general had no way of doing that. There wasn't, you know, unambiguous evidence about who the true owner was. Right. So when you run into that problem, well, what's the next best thing that you could do as a court or a judge? And especially in the Middle Ages, the next best thing you could do was to at least give the land to the disputant who valued it more. The guy who had a, a better economic use for the land, which consequently made it have a higher value to him. So, for example, if you, know, you were a more productive farmer than I am, and the court isn't sure which one of us to whom a contested piece of land actually belongs... Well, economically, the next best thing it can do is to give the land to you. The problem is that the court, the judge, doesn't have any obvious way of figuring out which one of us, in fact, values the land more. It can't just ask us because, you know, both of us are going to claim that we're the guy who really wants it more, who's the more productive farmer. Right. So the court or the judge needs some way to actually, you know, tap into that private information, that information that you and I only have in our heads about who in fact is the higher valuing user of the contested land. And a sensible way to try and get at that information is to effectively auction off the contested property. Trial by battles procedure, this fighting between the champions in the arena, was effectively like a kind of auction that served that very purpose. And in the Middle Ages, it was really, really important to have this kind of an auction system that would end up directing the land or having the land allocated via the legal system to the disputant who valued it more because of feudalism. Feudalism basically made the market for land really, really thin, made mm. it really hard to trade land because there weren't so much except for the, you know, the king. There weren't really landowners, properly speaking. There were tenants. There were people who were right. seized of land who had kind of, you know, usufruct rights, and they were connected to each other in this, you know, elaborate web. And so as a result of that, if you were a tenant, a land user, you needed to get the permission of a whole bunch of other people in the feudal system, most importantly, your lord and his lord and his lord's lord and so on, as well as heirs, in order to transact land and the reason that that's important is that when land can't be transacted easily in a market, it means that wherever a judge or a court assigns a disputed piece of property to whom, to, you know, whether it goes to you or to me, it tends to stay in that person's hands, it tends to stick. And so right. since the land won't be reallocated via trading activity to the person who ultimately values it more, we need to make sure that the judges have some way of figuring out who, which one of us values the land more right from the get-go. Hence the auction, hence trial by battle, which functioned like an auction. So in order to ask this next question, I'm wondering if you can 
offer our listeners a definition of rent-seeking? Sure. Uh, In general, you can think about rent-seeking as all the stuff that politicians ordinarily are engaged in that you don't want them to be engaged in. It's a kind of way of thinking about corruption. Technically, it has a somewhat broader and different meaning than that, but in practice, that's ordinarily what, you know, what, we're, what we're focused on. And in, in the context of trial by battle or in a legal context more generally, it would refer to, for example, the you know, frivolous lawsuits. So the activities of, of plaintiffs who don't have a real, real grounds for you know, trying to uh, legally contest some issue with someone else, but instead are just in it illegitimately trying to basically extort that person. Mm-hmm. And lawyers can be a part, or in fact, often are a critical part of that sort of rent-seeking, that mm-hmm. kind of corrupt activity, because they can obviously encourage plaintiffs to initiate illegitimate disputes and so on. But suppose also, imagine that a, a judge in deciding some case accepted a bribe from one of the litigants in order to do so. Well, that would be a kind of rent-seeking too. So it's really effectively a kind of a way of thinking about corruption in this context. Yeah. So if I want a better outcome, I'm going to find ways where I can distort the law to my advantage. Exactly. But rent seeking, is it always necessarily illegal or is it just like smarter manipulation of loopholes, that sort of thing? Yeah. No, it it doesn't have to be illegal. Illegal activity is one common form of rent seeking. So if a thief expends resources trying to just take resources from you, we call mm-hmm. that rent seeking. Mm-hmm. Technically, it's it's the uh, you know as the thief example sort of points to, it's the expenditure of resources mm-hmm. to merely redistribute the existing allocation of resources as opposed to actually creating wealth. So okay. it's when we it's when we spend our it's when we spend resources to just shift what we have around instead of creating more. All right, that's helpful. So here's my question. With that in mind, why would an auction be more susceptible to rent-seeking than a trial by battle? Because I think that that's your argument. Your argument is to say, hey, trial by battle is actually a better option because it's less susceptible to rent-seeking. So I'm curious how you come to that determination. Yeah, so if you think about trial by battle as an auction, which is you know, a, a way, again, of, of trying to identify who the higher valuing user of the contested land is, then the natural question that emerges is, well, why are they going through this process in the Middle Ages of hiring champions on this market for thugs and having them fight it out? Why not just literally auction the contested land off to the disputants? And the answer there is that ultimately the amount of money that the disputants under trial by battle would end up spending on legal representatives, on champions, is smaller than the amount of money that regular bidders would end up bidding in an auction on contested land if it were offered as an actual auction. And the reason that that's important is that the money that is offered by the disputants under trial by battle for champions goes into those champions' hands. Uh-huh. And that encourages the champions, for example, to basically want to, to initiate fraudulent land disputes. 
So the stronger thug can basically go to somebody who doesn't have a real claim on your land and just say, hey, why don't we offer up to the court that we think that land is yours? I'm the strongest guy, so I'll be able to ultimately beat the, the other champion and we'll be able to extort this guy, right? So the more, the, the more money that these champions command in the marketplace, which is a function of how much the property owners are willing to spend on them, yeah. the more that sort of activity potentially is encouraged, okay? So if I'm, let me just make sure I'm tracking with you. Uh-huh. So trial by battle has this theological bullshit baked into it. It is sort of a might makes right situation. Uh, it's going to privilege the person who has the better, mo- more money and better champion. But at the end of the day, it's going to give the, it's going to give the little guy a better chance because that person's spending a little bit less money or a lot less money than it would be if the, if the land was just auctioned off. It's not that it's giving him a better chance. What it's doing is it's protecting him more from fraud in the legal system. Right, okay. So one source of fraud, which happens in a trial by battle, is that your land is being illegitimately disputed just because champions are getting lots of money, and so they're in the system basically encouraging frivolous lawsuits. But if you just auction the land off instead, when people, when the, when the bidders, right, the disputants, if they were to make their bids, that money has to go somewhere. Under trial by battle, that, those bids, so to speak, <laughs> as I was just saying, are going ultimately to the champions. But where would they go under a regular auction? And there are two kinds of places that they could go in principle. One is that they could go to the legal system itself. So the judges could be the collections, could be the guys who ultimately receive the bids that are made for the contested land. Or the judges could collect it and then give the bid, you know, the, the winning bid over to whoever was in fact the loser as a way of compensating it. In either case, what you're doing is strongly incentivizing either potential litigants or the judges to have frivolous lawsuits because the more lawsuits there are, the more bids there are, and that produces the opportunity for resources to basically be collected by judges or by losers. So what you want to do to compare the potential for rent seeking or for corruption, if you want to think about it that way, between trial by battles auction system versus a regular auction system is to think about, well, how much money ultimately would be spent on the bids, so to speak, in both systems? Because that is a proxy for how much inducement a regular auction versus trial by battle would in fact offer for fraudulent activity. And the reason that trial by battle would end up resulting in smaller bids, so fewer resources basically going on champions compared to what would have been offered as a bid in a regular auction for the contested land, is because of these two features of trial by battle that tend to depress the the value to the disputants of basically engaging in this litigation in the first place. Hmm. The first is that under trial by battle, as I mentioned before, the higher valuing litigant only wins the contested land probabilistically. Right. So the guy who wants the land more hires the better champion, so he's more likely to get the land. But the better champion, as we talked about earlier, could also be upset. Right. He he could be, in fact, defeated by the weaker champion in the same way that you're just adding you a know, little bit of chance to to the situation. Precisely. But that chance means that I'm going to be willing to bid less 
through the market for champions, as opposed to in a regular auction, there is no chance, right? If you bid more, you get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what that encourages you to do if you're the higher valuing disputant is in fact to ultimately bid up to your maximum valuation. And so you end up spending more under a regular auction, those bids which are then going to go to the judge or to the loser, then you end up spending under trial by battle on champions. So why not just say that trial by battle is cheaper for everyone? It's cheaper for society, all things considered. Yeah, okay. And I do think that it, certainly less chance of fraud because you can't pay off the judge or whatever. Yeah, you can't pay off the judge. But in the end, it's also fewer resources that are ultimately going into legal activity. Yeah, okay. Right? So think about it this way. When we have real property disputes, and this could be in the Middle Ages or this could be today, when we have real property disputes, we want lawyers, we want courts, we want a legal process to help figure out who that land belongs to. Mm -hmm. So we're all in favor of that. But what everyone also complains about today, for example, is the fraudulent nature of many lawsuits and the so-called ambulance chasing lawyer. Sure. Those we think are basically socially wasteful activities. They're not, they're not resources being expended on legal activities that are actually helping to clarify productive property rights, what they're doing is basically just eating up everybody's time and resources, making them fight off pointless lawsuits. And so under trial by battle, ultimately the amount of money spent in that way is lower than it would have been under just a simple ordinary auction. Part of that is because of the randomness, the chance element of having this fight between champions as opposed, which Mm -hmm. doesn't exist in a regular auction. But there was this other component as well which is that in a regular auction, the higher bidder wins and he pays, but the loser doesn't pay anything. The loser walks away without having spent any money. Under trial by battle, both litigants end up spending money on their champions. So the fact that the loser has to pay something in addition to the winner means that the fact that I know I have to pay even if I lose, if I think I'm likely to lose, then that means I'm going to be willing to pay something, but a lot less right. than if I'm certain that, that I don't have to pay. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I, as one of the litigants, spend less, that means that the other litigant can now defeat me by spending less too. And so the total amount of spending on potentially frivolous legal activity goes down. Sure. You know, trial by battle, the economic logic of it, you can't explain it in like a simple I don't think there's like a, oh, it's just this. It's, it's, takes, it's kind of elaborate, and that's why my answer, that's part of my justification to you for why my answers suck. No, no, no. I, <laughs> I, look, I love creative stuff. I absolutely love creative stuff. I love the exercise of it. I'm going to push back a little bit and see where you, what you do with this, okay? Yeah, yep. Sorry to interrupt. This conversation is about to get goofy, and you're not going to want to miss it. But before that, a brief word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're 
getting geared up for the 6th annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Peter Leeson. Okay, so would you agree that without trial by battle, fewer people are maimed and killed? Uh, I would, but very, very, very fewer. Okay. (laughs) You're right. Okay, so, you know, good armor, maybe a few concussions here and there most of the time. Could be that. Uh, these champions don't die very often, but they do die sometimes. You know, we have we have examples. Rarely, yeah, we, we certainly yes. have examples of champions dying. Okay, so in the other way, it's more costly. Maybe there's more fraud involved. Fewer deaths. I, I think we can agree on that. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other thing about this is that it seems to me that there's something dangerous about the idea that. God favors the better fighter or the bigger guy or the guy with the better armor. I, I feel, or the longer arm. I mean, I mean, gosh, I'm, I'm not a very tall fellow. It favors the taller fellow. And so I think that there's something quite dangerous about the idea that society is worshiping a God that favors the guy with the better steel. It's an enormous social consequence to my mind. I mean, look, there are whenever God is invoked uh, for legal purposes, and he's often invoked for legal purposes historically and today, sure. there is this, you know, there is certainly a potential downside to it. Uh, at least I, I'm no theologian, but I would suspect that, you know, my general intuition is that the more that we have God basically performing like magic tricks for us in the world, <laughs> even if they're for legal purposes, the kind of, you know, less 
potential authority that we might ascribe to God in some way. No, I think I think you're right, and I think I think eliminating the trial by battle gets some of that theological bullshit out of the legal system. Yeah, except trial by battle. Well, before we get to that part, I mean, so that's the cost. I agree with you. There's a cost, but there's also an enormous benefit, which is of invoking God in legal in legal environments, which is why we do so. We have for hundreds of years, and we still do so today. Right. There's a reason why there until very recently there was oath swearing on the Bible in courtrooms. Sure. Right. There's there's a reason why from the between the ninth and thirteenth centuries in all of Christendom, criminal cases were basically, you know, prosecuted effectively by seeing whether or not God would perform a miracle in a, you know, trial by fire. For a litigant. Yeah, get rid of all that. That's what I'm saying. The, the, yeah. The, get rid of all of it. And that means getting rid of trial by battle. It might mean it, it, was, it could mean it certainly would mean getting rid of trial by unilateral ordeal. And it might have meant getting rid of trial by battle. But the point is, it, you're missing the benefit, I think. I right? am. The, the, reason, right, I am. <laughs> the, the reason the reason why societies have uh, why why in Christ, societies in Christendom in particular, although it's not limited to Christendom, That's have right. done this for for century upon century, and that is because God is supposed to be omniscient and omnipotent. That means that when we invoke Him, it alters the incentives of the legal participants who mm. think that God can see everything that they're doing. And it oftentimes alters their incentives in ways that are socially productive. Right? You don't have to go to the courtroom for this, right? So if, for example, that you believe that God's going to smite you, uh-huh. if you know you shoplift a candy bar, well, you're very unlikely to shoplift a candy bar and so on for any sort of crime. Well, and also, if I think that swearing on the Bible, if swearing on the Bible generally makes people tell the truth more often, then it serves a social function. But it bakes something into the legal system that ought not to be there. Whether or not it ought to be there is, is definitely beyond my pay grade. All I'm, I'm concerned with is understanding why it is there, why it's such a central component of legal systems past sure. and present. Well, and I think okay. there's an economic basis to it. But it's the same mentality that goes into something like Manifest Destiny or something like the army that wins, it happens to be the army that the gods favored on that particular day. It's the same kind of rationale. It's the same rationale that says, well, of course, God is going to favor the winner of this dispute. And that's the kind of thing that I feel like it, the, the social cost of that is is so much greater than any kind of cost about the, the fraud or frivolous legal activity. That Am I thinking about this wrong or what am I missing here? You're not, I think what you're not thinking about it wrong, but I think what you're missing is the enormous benefit of having you know, God behind legal processes historically, and therefore the enormous cost if you just took them out, right? So it's one thing to sit, to, to take it from today's perspective yeah. for us in the United States where private property rights are extremely well-defined and enforced by government, where judges have a very good idea as a result of modern surveying techniques and uh-huh. deeds and everything's being recorded, what property is like, and where we live in an extremely wealthy society as a consequence of that. We take all that for granted, and then I agree, if today what we were doing was 
invoking trial by battle and saying, you know, and God favors the right favors the righteous champion. I would agree with you that the the cost of doing that would exceed the benefit. Yes. However, go back to the 12th century. Okay, go go back to the 12th century. It, you, it's easy to forget they didn't even have, for the most part, charters. As I was saying, it was just witnesses. Property yeah. rights were not well defined and enforced. And if you can't ultimately get property into the hands of people who value it more, your economy cannot support people's existence. Mm-hmm. It's that fundamental. Mm-hmm. So imagine that that property you know, is going to be locked into the hands of people who are not effective users of that property. Well, you have mass starvation. And so at that point, I would say, look, pretty much whatever the cost is that you, that you might think is involved with saying, you know, God ultimately favors the favors the rightful champion. Whatever religious costs you think there is, or even potentially, well, I think it's so, I think it's social a social cost. cost. But continue. The point is that whatever that cost is, you would have to basically convince me that it was so large that it trumped starvation throughout England. And I would say, I don't, you know, I guess conceivably that's true, but it's hard for me to imagine circumstance circumstances under which it would be true. What would, what would be the cost that is so great that you would be willing to basically wipe out most of the population in order to prevent it? I mean, starvation certainly is, uh, we see repeated problems in European history for sure. Were more lives lost to starvation or like something like the Crusades? I don't know the answer to that, but I know that one feels ickier than the other. <laughs> yeah. I'm appealing to yeah. my, my, my sense of ickiness now. Um, one more question for you, Pete, if you don't mind. No, of course. Um, so far, we've only been talking about what we would think of in the modern mind as a civil dispute. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of, you know, this podcast goes out to fans of Game of Thrones. In that story, there's a few examples of trial by combat that are what we would consider a more criminal dispute. Like, you're accused of murder. Here's your trial. Oh, no. Someone has proclaimed, uh, you know, trial by combat. In your research, was this mostly about civil disputes or was trial by battle also used for criminal disputes? So I studied trial by battle in the English context, and there it was overwhelmingly used for civil disputes. Ah, okay, good to know. It wasn't only used in England, however. And, you know, it was also used in France, other, other parts of uh, other, obviously it was imported from France into, into England originally. And there it again served, my understanding was that it, it served the purpose of, of allocating or deciding land disputes, but it was also used more, somewhat more often there for criminal cases. But in general, throughout Christendom, you had this much more popular form of trying criminal matters during this period. And that was trial by unilateral ordeal. So that was boil the pot of water and have the defendant plunge his arm into it or put the iron on the on the fire and let it heat until it's red hot and then have the defendant carry it for nine paces or bind the defendant up and plunk him into a pool of holy water and see if he sinks or he floats. That was overwhelmingly the type of, uh, that's called unilateral ordeal, that was the type of procedure that was used to, to try criminal cases. Ah, the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> hey. <laughs> hey, I wanted to... <laughs> hey, man, listen, I love, I love 
creative solutions. I love arguments that I haven't heard before. And people that are willing to see where the logic will take the argument uh, if they decide to go down at sort of the path less taken. Yeah, yeah. No, that's I'm I am thrilled to hear that, and I'm I, again I'm very grateful that uh, I'm very grateful that you, that you invited me, and and, and I'm going to be a close listener to to your podcast in general, and I'm looking at your work much more closely because you know it's rare to find people who, <laughs> to be frank, to find people who uh, find value in following the following the logic wherever sure. it leads. You know, it, it really is. I think terrific. You know, did have you? Um, I was tr- put, mentioning the unilateral ordeal stuff, and, and this is also related to trial by battle. I mean, you know, a big part of my argument or thinking about this is that it really is the same thing that we do today. Like when you said the good old days, which is hilarious, it's also like the, the good current days. I really feel that. I mean, think about trial by jury for a minute, right? Right. Which, you know, people think is, is grand. I mean, it basically works just like trial by fire. Like it's not there's no reason that 12 people randomly selected off the street would actually be able to find fact in a criminal case, right? It's like absurd. Well, I think that there's this valuation on common sense in both cases. And of course, common sense is going to look differently in different social contexts. Yeah. But I think that there's this idea, especially in America, which values kind of um, authority from below. Mm-hmm. Um, which, hey, I'm I'm a big fan of that too. But there is a sense in which, hey, you go find some dude off the street and just ask him to use his God-given common sense. And he's going to be able to, you know, come up with a good decision because anyone with half a brain is going to be able to observe this situation and come to a conclusion about it. And the whole thing is predicated on the idea that just God-given common sense is going to give you the right solution. It doesn't yes. think about prejudice. It doesn't think about certain concept of self-preservation. Uh, all of those things that go into what a jury is supposed to do is overlooking this <laughs> these massive gaps. So anyway, I, I appreciate it, it's, your it's a It's a myth, right, though? But that's the thing. It's a myth, just like the myth of believing that God is involved in judicial affairs. The, the idea that God is going to give us the right answer in a, in, a, at a, in a trial is false. And so is the idea that random guys off the street using their common sense are going to give us the right answer. But the, the key thing, the logic that connects them is it doesn't matter that the system leverages the, the myths. As long as defendants, criminal defendants believe that the jury can, that the random guy off the street using his common sense can in fact get to the truth of the matter, mm. or as long as the defendant believes that God can get to the truth of the matter, it operates on his incentives and basically leads him to take a plea bargain if he's guilty and to fight uh, and go to trial if he's not. And and it's that information right. that's revealed to the legal system. So it's leveraging. That's what I'm saying is common. Like we always, each age has its own myths and each age's legal systems leverage those myths for in order to basically harness the incentives of defendants to solve the actual real economic problem, which is the problem of private information that systems face. So the the major caveat that I just want to make sure I call out here is that for my money, I'm going to imagine that a jury of biased, prejudiced, self-interested members of my peers 
are going to get it right more often than if I leave it into sticking my hand into a pot of boiling water. I mean, that to me, I feel like certainly the legal system isn't perfect. It's better than it was. I why I actually I totally disagree. I think the pot of boiling water is a far more accurate way of fact finding. <laughs> oh, I really I I swear because it, I mean think about it. If you're it, it's a far more effective way of fa- accurate way of fact finding conditional on people believing in God that God performs this trick right. So if they don't, then I agree it doesn't work. But if they do, so, which is when it was in the Middle Ages when when it was used right when people believed. If, if you actually believe that, then think about it from the perspective of, an, of, of you as the criminal defendants, right? Mm. Let's suppose that you, you had committed the crime, right? This legal system, the judges are trying to figure out, did you commit the crime or not? You know, but they don't know. If you committed the crime, you're, are you, and the judge says, okay, we'll plunge your bo- arm into the boiling water and we'll see what God says. If you actually knew you were guilty, you wouldn't plunge your arm in the water. What you do is you just immediately offer up your confession, which is what happened. And on the other hand, if you knew you were innocent, you'd happily plunge your arm in the water because you knew that God would perform a miracle so the water wouldn't hurt you. So conditional on seeing your willingness to plunge your arm into the water, what the, what the legal system had the priests do was basically make sure, turn down the dial on the stove so the water didn't burn you. It just had tepid water in it, <laughs> and which is why when you look at the historical evidence, all these guys who are drawing their arms out of the supposedly boiling water, their arms are totally unscathed. Well, then this is the same kind of corrupt system. I mean, I, and I guess what I'm saying, I'm, I guess what I'm saying, let's get all of that superstitious stuff out of the system. That's, that's my argument. But it's missing that the superstition, we still, why do superstitions linger? Because they're socially useful. Suppose in the Middle Ages, you didn't have this belief that God would perform that trick with the boiling water. Well, how did you expect, and suppose you had just gotten six guys, six guys from the Shire, who ended up offering their opinion on whether or not you had committed the crime. There would be no correct fact-finding. They would basically convict guys they didn't like, exonerate guys they did like, but that would mean that actual criminals got off the hook and innocent people were convicted. And conditional on the belief that I was talking about before with the pot of boiling water system, only the guilty guys are ever convicted. The, the innocent guys always get exonerated. So how is it, how is it better to have the six guys in the Shire? So you're telling me that if some dude slips on your steps and it's icy and you're in court and the, and the judge says, okay, you can either have a regular trial here. We can do either do this in the, the usual way using the court systems as you know it. Alternatively, I've got this pot of boiling water over here. We could do something different today. Are you, are you interested? And you're telling me, Pete Leeson, you would go for the pot of boiling water conditional on on me living in a society where people believed that god would perform that trick yes it all comes down to the belief which is why probably today i wouldn't have said it you're putting you're putting a lot of faith in these priests turning down the temperature of the water but they were incentivized to turn down the water (laughs) because the priests actually were got their the priests income was based on tithes it was based basically on agricultural taxes Uh and your, your, your tax base depended upon how productive the farmers were and how productive the farmers were depended in part on whether or not crime was rampant. So the priests had a very strong incentive basically to not have rampant crime in their area because their income depended on it. What if the priest just doesn't like the look of you? What if the priest looks at you and says, that guy's got beady eyes. 
Fuck this he guy. He could do that. <laughs> he could do that, but he pays a price for doing so, right? Which is that ultimately he's allowing more crime in his area, which means his income goes down. But he could still do it. But compare that to the six guys from the Shire. What price, what price do they pay if they don't, just don't like the cut of your jib? Zero price at all if they just indulge their preferences. So the priest has stronger incentives. Everybody can fuck around. But the priest has stronger incentives to not fuck around than six guys in the Shire because his income is connected to, to you know, the extent of criminality in his area. Yeah, I mean, you're, I don't want to put too much faith in the six guys from the Shire, but they also have an, a social incentive. You know, they got to look their neighbors in the eye. Uh, they, so does the priest. I mean, what, they don't have to look. They've got to meet these guys at the market. They've got to do business with these guys. Even if that's true, I mean, yes, it's true, but of course it was also true of priests. But the bigger problem is is it's not so much that the six guys from the Shire are necessarily going to want to do the wrong thing. It's that they don't know what the right thing or the wrong thing is because they have no way of knowing whether you actually committed the crime or not. And that's the whole purpose of the, of the boiling water is that it actually provides correct information about did you commit the crime or didn't you? That's what's beautiful about it. Is that there is a, a there is a you are the only one when you're the criminal defendant in that system who truly knows if you committed the crime or not, and you are basically out yourself. You're incentivized to out yourself through the specter of the boiling water, which provides to everybody in the legal system the information. Think about the six guys from the Shire at that point as just being like the judge, the inf- the true information about whether you did it or not. Now, what they do after that is up to them, but at least we could know whether or not you did it, we could access the knowledge that you have. Without the, the, the threat of the boiling water, we can't access it at all. We're just guessing. That's why I think if, you, if we actually care about criminal justice, we should you know boil more pots of water, so to speak. So the book is titled WTF, An Economic Tour of the Weird, Emphasis on Weird, and yes, Correct Emphasis. <laughs> this, oh, is all, this is all very bizarre to me. Yes, absolutely. There's 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 fraud involved. There's you know there's there's more there's more rent sinking involved. These other alternatives kind of take some of that out of the equation. It introduces a whole lot of nonsense. Ah, uh, it, it it just it feels like we've come so far, and maybe it's chronological snobbery in my mind. But I'm going to take my chances with the jury of my peers. To you me, are, that sounds but... like absolutely I am. I don't want to depend on some priest to turn down the temperature of the water. Modern systems, our system is clearly better than a 12th century system, but not because. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, but but you're getting you're putting you're getting the reason mistaken. To my mind, the reason that that our system is much better and why uh-huh. we wouldn't want to take our chances today is because science. Like things like DNA evidence and fuck electricity, where you could actually see what's happening outside at night to like witness testimony could sure. be real. Something as basic as that. And glasses. We have all of that. And glasses. <laughs> Thank you. And all of that. That is why we are fact finding is good today. Not because of jury. Juries are, are unequivocally worse than the boiling pot of water, conditional unbelief in God. But what's so much better is the stuff that we basically are showing the juries, right? The fingerprints, mm. the pictures, mm. the video. They didn't have that. Okay. So that's what makes our system better. Take that out of the system. Take that away and now just make it, you know, really imagine. Here I am in, you know, in 1100 Germany. Uh-huh. 
and I've got six guys from the Shire or the pot of boiling water. Now, we can't put ourselves in that person's shoes in part because we know that if the system worked the way that I'm describing it, that it's basically a sham that is that is leveraging this superstition. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing is based on the guys then didn't view it as a superstition. They thought it was real. And that's what makes it work. It's like an institutional placebo effect. Yeah, I, I get I get I totally get that part of it for sure. You know, the other part that I really liked about your essay was the detail that the knights would be inspected for any kind of magical trinkets. Yeah, the charms. Or yeah. or some kind of some kind of liaison with sorcery that might taint the outcome of the affair. Um yeah. I mean that that it really does illustrate some of what we're talking about here. Yes. That people truly believe this stuff. That's right. That yeah. people truly believe it. That's right. Hey man, I I absolutely appreciate your time. Have Thanks a great so day, much, man. Anthony. Sure. Yep, you too. My thanks again to Peter Leeson for a fascinating and bizarre conversation. Do check out his book, WTF, on Amazon or the Stanford Press website. Hey, if you're enjoying Electric Bookaloo and you haven't done so already, I would be extremely grateful if you would leave a positive review on Apple iTunes. It really is the best way to increase the visibility of this podcast and keep this train moving forward. Maybe you're not the kind of person who leaves reviews. Maybe you've never left a review before. It really won't take more than five minutes, and it would be a huge help to me. If you're listening on your iPhone, just check out the show notes to this podcast and scroll down till you see the link for leave a review. It's that simple. I always appreciate feedback at book at baldmove.com. And that is all for this week.